The fire changed the color of the sea with the blood from the bodies of the enemy, a sea whose color had remained the same for years. Shells and machine gun bullets fell ceaselessly at the points where rifle fire was observed, but in spite of this, heavy fire was opened from all of our trenches. In a vain attempt to save their lives, the enemy threw themselves from the boats into the sea. The shore became full of enemy corpses like a shoal of fish. Folks, this is episode 25 and part three of the Gallipoli landings, and this one will cover V Beach. Next episode, I'll cover the Anzac landing. That opening quote was from Major Mahmoud of the Turkish 5th Army, describing the scene as the Tommies began their arrival onto V Beach. I'm not going to say this was the darkest day for the British during the Great War. I think the Somme is by far the worst day ever, probably for the British military in all of history, but this was pretty bad. They suffered serious losses at V Beach and even lost several high-ranking officers just in one morning. Again, if you take a look at the Dardanelles Straits, as you enter from the Aegean Sea, you have Asia Turkey to the right and then Europe Turkey to the left, which is Gallipoli with Cape Hellas being at the southern point of the Euroside, basically a U-shape. The French 6th Division landed on the Asia side at Kumkale, which was covered on the last episode. This was right across the water from the southern point of the Hellas, and was meant to be a supportive maneuver for the W and V landings. The intention was to take out artillery batteries that could pose a threat. The Tommies and the Aussies were in charge of the Europe side. At the heel of Gallipoli, the British had five landing sites, X, S, Y, W, and V Beach. If I said that right, she's like, I'm going to get confused myself. I said that S, X, Y, W, and V. This is what the actual site landings were referred to as. I, I didn't just randomly pick out those letters. And basically, you're going for it to form a U right around the heel. From the top left, working our way counterclockwise, you have X, X, W, V, and then X, X. Jesus, did I say that? I'm getting confused again. <laughs> Let me try that again. Forming that U, starting from the top left, working our way counterclockwise, you have Y, X, W, V, and S, forming that U. I had to like picture it out with my hands. And above Y will be the Anzac landing location. And keep in mind, although I'm talking about these landings as separate entities, all of these landings were taking place on April 25th, or basically around the same time frame. So you can imagine what the southern area of Gallipoli must have looked and sounded like on that day. The morning didn't go good for the Allies right out the gate, like a racehorse tripping over his own feet after the gates open. So far there's been delays, obstacles, bad intel, and not to mention a massive amount of dead bodies stacking up on both sides. And it's really just begun. 
But let's cool our jets down just a bit to go over some tidbits. This is the 25th episode for the show, kind of a personal milestone I hit. I set goals, I make it to X amount of episodes and then reevaluate, see how many downloads I get, etc. And I'm happy with the way things are rolling right now. I'll be honest, if I had zero listeners, I would just stop. This is time consuming and knowing people are listening, sharing the passion for the Great War keeps me going. November 11th was Veterans Day in America. So to all you veterans out there, happy belated Veterans Day. In fact, there's been a lot going on since the last episode. We've In America, we've had an election. We've had Veterans Day. We've had Thanksgiving. Who knows? Lockdowns. Who knows what else is going on? It's been, a, it's been quite a month. I'll say that. Did anybody get to watch the short film Waiting for Dawn? It's such a touchy subject for a lot of people. The execution of soldiers, of your own soldiers. This isn't talked about not nearly enough. These poor men and young boys, some of whom weren't legally of age to even have been at war, were shot for various reasons. But each reason should raise an eyebrow and questions should be asked even today. Because the majority of the convictions shouldn't have resulted in execution. You know, I'm not a pacifist. At least I don't believe I am. I support the military. I'm a veteran myself. I do know there's a time and place for our military to take out those who threaten a free world. And unfortunately, we're living in a time where there's a lot of people who are doing just that. But I also believe I'm a compassionate man. A reasonable man. A man who views the world from a sensible window. And if you look back at this war, many soldiers, actually almost all the soldiers were dealing with an ungodly amount of stress brought on by horrific situations that greatly affected their nervous system. Please excuse my language I'm about to use. The soldiers were fucked up in the head. At least a good majority of them were. Men were labeled as cowards and were shot for showing signs of what is now called PTSD. They would uncontrollably shake and mumble under their breath, they would often wander off. Some men cracked from stress. And for this, they were snatched up, pulled off the line, put in front of a makeshift military court controlled by men who most often weren't even on the front lines, and then were sentenced to death by way of firing squad, often shot shot by their own pals. No argument argument could be made, nobody there to defend them. Their country treated them like yesterday's garbage, like spoiled food they were so easily to get rid of. And all nations during the war did this. I'm not pointing any single country out. All were guilty of this. And the execution of kids, it just makes me sick. I don't even know where to start with that topic. Not only did the war rob so many of their youth, so did their own country. Yeah, that's a whole podcast on its own in the future. It wasn't until 2006 that the British government pardoned 306 soldiers, almost 100 years later. 100 years later. I just don't feel the sincerity is there and with so much time that went by, but what do I know? Okay, let me lighten things up. On this episode, I'm not sipping on any of grandpa's old medicine. Nope, I'm sipping on some coffee. In fact, it's not just coffee, it's great coffee. 
I got some beans from a veteran-owned business out of Austin, Texas called Invader Coffee. I'm currently sipping on the Mexican chocolate and damn is it good. Yeah, and damn, I think I just burned my tongue. Of course, you have to know how to make good coffee. Not only am I a World War I nerd, I'm also a coffee nerd. I need it on a daily. I have to have it. And my preferred delivery method is by way of French press. This podcast isn't sponsored in any sort of way by the company. I just like supporting veteran-owned businesses, especially when they're selling good products. Just go to invadercoffee.com and check it out. Don't be shy to tell them I sent you. Maybe I can get a couple extra beans in my next bag. In fact, I'm due for some. All right, let's see. What else do I got going on? I think that's it. All right, then. Let's get this show started. Okay, so this episode should have a lot of quotes. I hope you appreciate them as much as I do because... These are the, their words, the words of the survivors. This is how they remembered it. They lived through it and described what they had witnessed through their eyes. I believe this is the most important piece of the Great War history we need to preserve and pass along. The words of the soldiers and sailors who were there. And it's how the podcast is structured. So here we go. In Peter Hart's book, Gallipoli, He describes the landing at V Beach as being the worst of all the landings on April 25th. And I think he's correct. The beach turned into a slaughterhouse, an abattoir in French, as the Tommies attempted just to get onto the beach. And to give you some perspective of the death toll the British endured during this battle, they took around 73,000 casualties during the whole Gallipoli campaign, with close to 30,000 of those being KIA. And again, it's always an estimate because a good number of bodies were never recovered. I believe the Somme is the blackest cloud that lingers over the British military. There they took around 57,000 casualties in just one day, with close to 20,000 of those being KIAs. Just off those numbers, you can get a picture of the magnitude of death and destruction. The Dardanelles was indeed an extremely bloody campaign. Around 250 Turkish soldiers from the 326th Regiment prepared positions for the arrival of enemy troops. They constructed trenches of above the beach that stretched along Cape Palace all the way to defensive fighting positions at the Sed El Bar Fortress. The Turks were in place and ready to make a greeting. Heading straight for Cape Palace was the SS River Clyde carrying the 2nd Hampshires and the 1st Royal Munster Fusilers. Being towed in by steamboats was the first Royal Dublin Fusilers, who were designated to be the first troops to land on V Beach. Just after 5 a.m., about the time when most people are still peacefully sleeping, the sun still making its way to rise and shine, morning came to life not with the sounds of waves crashing on the sand, or birds chirping in the air, or anything peaceful. Nope. This morning opened with a thunderous rage of naval guns bombarding Sed El Bar and the villages surrounding landing site V to hell. Oh, 
For the men aboard the ships, listening to the guns firing in sync, it must have been impossible to, to, to distinguish which guns were firing and how much. All they knew was hell was being unleashed, shell after shell, and the effect was a countryside glowing red. As the sun began to rise, the destruction became evident as smoldering houses appeared, mounds of earth and debris being thrown into the air after each explosion. And along with debris and earth, of course there was bodies. It's hard not to think of the innocent just living their lives, not knowing what hit them. However, it's also hard not to think how unwise it would have been of them to stay as they seen the Turkish soldiers preparing defensive positions. They had to have known something was coming. And even with the massive naval bombardment, this didn't take out nearly enough soldiers as they expected. In fact, it probably did more damage to the civilians than anything. Yes, the soldiers took some casualties, and the casualty scene I would imagine was quite grim because they weren't being shot, they were being blown up. But because the strict orders from Major Mahmoud for his men to show discipline and stay in place in the trenches, the majority overcame. And a big reason for this was because the majority of the shells literally skimmed right over the trenches due to its flat trajectory. No doubt the men from the 10th Company, 326th Regiment, were now agitated. At this point, they knew a landing was next. So all they could do was clench their rifles with anticipation, waiting for the enemy to arrive. It would soon be their turn to hit back. And that's sort of the mood that has set the stage for this landing. The Turkish soldiers were pissed off, itching for their turn to deliver the punches right back. And they're going to punch right back hard and at a non-stop pace the whole damn day. The Dublins were scheduled to start arriving to the shore by 5.30. However, this was delayed by around an hour due to difficulty landing the men in the rowing boats because of rough current in the Dardanelles. When it became apparent that the SS River Clyde would hit the shore first, confusion set in. And confusion on each landing, landing site outside the French seems to have been the theme for Hellas. The Army commanders aboard the River Clyde, Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Carrington Smith and Lieutenant Colonel Henry Tizard, didn't know if the Dubliners had hit the beach or not. Captain Edward Unwin, commander of the River Clyde, yelled out if the Dublins had landed. And the only response given below was, Down now. <laughs> that was the response given. Not really the kind of answer you're looking for under those circumstances, especially as a commander. Carrington Smith warned Unwin that if they proceeded ahead of the Royal Dublin Fuselers, this would have an extreme negative impact on the plan. Unwin, after giving it much thought, decided to turn the River Clyde into a full circle. As hard as the turn was, trying to avoid disaster by crashing into other ships or getting between the French ships and their targets at Kumkale, this was a massive ship. Unwin successfully made the full circle turn. However, after doing so, still no toes with the RDFs were spotted. And the time was now or never. They needed to proceed forward. No more busting circles in the parking lot. As the ship approached, it began to take harassing shell fire from across the strait. And at 0622 hours with low sea levels, the SS River Clyde ran aground 80 yards from the shore, a little farther out than expected. They arrived only seven minutes ahead of the Dublins. The boats carrying the RDFs were called cutters. 
Each cutter carried around 35 men, depending on the equipment being carried. And there were four cutters strung on a line being towed by a steamboat. You can Google the boats and you'll see how packed the men were. They look like sardines. A captain from the RDF described the situation as they got close to the shore and the steamboats pulled away, saying, quote, As soon as the tows got into shallow water, the picket boats cast off and the blue jackets commenced to row. You can imagine how slowly we progressed. Six men pulling a heavy boat with about 30 soldiers, each carrying over 60 pounds kit and ammunition on his body. Captain David French, 1st Royal Dublin Fusiliers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. And about this time when the SS River Clyde grounded out, a hailstorm of bullets opened up on the Dublins at V Beach. It was hard for a Turkish soldier to miss a target because there were so many to pick from. The bullets turned the shore landing into a meat grinder. As they got closer, the Blue Jackets rowing the boats were either killed or wounded. Men were being yelled out to jump out of the boats, but some didn't because they knew they were carrying enough weight to sink them. Others that did jump in quickly realized it was a bad idea and clung onto the boats with desperation. The boats were too high for them to jump back in with all the gear, so many just ditched it. All the while, bullets continued to fly past. The ships were being littered with bullet holes and were filling with water fast. The men knew they couldn't just sit and wait to be killed. They desperately rowed back to the hopper. An officer from the RDF described the situation, saying, quote, They opened a terrible fire on us with machine guns and pom-poms, the shells of which contained an incendiary mixture. They began to hit the boat I was in and killed many of my men as we were rowing ashore. We were also unlucky enough to lose several of the Blue Jackets who were rowing us in. The men had to take over their oars, and as they did not know much about rowing, the result was that we often got broadsided onto the shore and presented a better target to the enemy. Just before we grounded, the boat got hit once or twice with incendiary shells and commenced to go on fire. She was also half full of water from the many holes in her by this time. Several of the men who had been wounded fell to the bottom of the boat and were either drowned there or suffocated by other men falling on top of them. Many, to add to their death agonies, were burnt as well. Lieutenant Colbert Maffitt, 1st Royal Dublin Fusiliers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division. Another officer described it, saying, Having practically wiped out those in the other three boats ahead, they were now concentrating their fire on us. I jumped out at once into the sea, up to my chest and yelling to the men to make a rush for it and to follow me. But the poor devils, packed like sardines in a tin and carrying this damn weight on their backs, could scarcely clamber over the sides of the boats. Captain David French, end quote. Maffitt and French's description of that early morning paints the true picture of what it was like for those boys. No boat was safe. They became mass coffins trapping the men in. Each one was methodically attacked by Turkish defenders. And the Turks were in complete control of the situation at this point. By the time Captain David French and some of the men, the men made it ashore, they could do nothing. There was no chance of organizing an attack without being gunned down. 
All they could do was hunker down as low as possible in a low-lying bank on the sand that provided protection and wait for an opportunity to, or, to make a move. And they had no idea how long that would be. At this point, the dead was piling up. In some cases, only a couple soldiers survived out of the whole cutter. The boats were broadsided and toppled over from the waves with a mound of dead and wounded in the sand. Some of the men in the boats were so badly wounded they couldn't move. All they did was moan in agony. Sadly, it got worse. When the tides began to rise, most of the moans were silenced for good. The Dublins were almost in complete ruin. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Ruth, had been shot dead on the beach. The second in command was lying mortally wounded in his boat. The only landing that somewhat went right was a single tow of cutters that landed around the corner below a step track leading up to the Set Bar village. They were given protection under the wall of the fort there. These men made their way to the village, but were met by Turks who overwhelmed them and outfought them. I mean, think about it. They only had a single row of cutters able to make any kind of move. Just a single toe against an enemy that was planted waiting for them to arrive. Very few Dublins escaped and survived that fight. Now, as the RDFs were getting slaughtered, the men from the 2nd Hampshires and 1st Royal Munster Fuselers were ready to disembark the SS River Clyde. Steam hoppers and lighters were moving from the port side to form bridges between the platforms attached to the bow of the River Clyde leading to the beach. Z Company from the 1st RMF was the first to make their way out of the belly of the ship. They were led by a Captain Henderson. The men exited the starboard ports running down the gangway to the lighters. A captain from another company described it saying, quote, Henderson led his company, ordering me to follow at the end of his platoon. One by one they popped out, and then my turn. All the way down the sides of the ship, bullets crashed against the side. On reaching the first barge, I found some of the men had collected and were firing. I mistrust the second barge and the track to the shore, so I led them over the side. The water came nearly up to our shoulders. However, none of us were hit and we gained the bank. There I found Henderson badly shot and heaps of wounded. Any man who puts up his head for an instant was shot dead. Captain Raymond Lane, 1st Royal Munster Fuselers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. Again, the Turks were in place anticipating this. They saw the modern-age Trojan horse grounding out. They knew it was a matter of time before the soldiers appeared from her belly. And when they started to emerge, they unloaded on them. The men were pinned down, much like the small group of Dublin survivors. Imagine that scene from a Turkish point of view. Their finger on the trigger ready to go. They see men in single lines pouring out of this massive ship. From that point on... It's just a continued racking of a bullet, fire, maneuver the bolt back, then forward, racking another round, fire, and so on and so on as fast as they could. All the Turks in place doing this. In a way, it's like D-Day, except all the men are appearing from this one boat making it worse. They weren't spread out, so the Turks just concentrated their fire on this one area where the mass of soldiers were appearing. And thinking about it from the Tommy's point of view, you're in the belly of the River Clyde, safe from bullets. You can hear what's going on after several platoons have exited. Men exiting can see other men getting shot. 
pinned down and dead all about. The movement out into the open is slowing down, and the so-called exit door is jamming up, creating more chaos. There's not a lot of options for the men. And for the few survivors of the Dublins, they're pinned down and all they could do is watch as the men exited the ship and were greeted by a hailstorm of bullets. I'm sure their instincts wanted to warn them, but nothing could be done at that point. Planks connecting the lighters were breaking and drifting away, leaving men stranded in the open, deciding what to do next. The only option for some was to jump into the sea and make a swim for it. It was either that or be gunned down. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to swim with boots or, or clothes on. It's hard. And then you add on weight from ammo, rations, your rifle, and whatever else you had in the packs. It's understandable why so many sunk and drowned. All of my units I was in in the Army, I had to pass a swim test in the assessment process. You do this with combat gear, or at least you did in my day. I'm not sure what, what it consists of now. A lot of years have passed since I did it. I've always been a strong swimmer. I grew up in Southern California in the Pacific Ocean. I spent a lot of time in the water. I'm very comfortable with it. Others weren't, and I seen men deathly afraid of it. And they didn't pass because of this. I've had to take the swim test with a thin layer of ice on the water. It's brutal. It'll take your breath away in an instant. I never judged a man for not being able to swim in it, especially if they weren't used to swimming in cold water like that. I can understand the panic and why many men drowned at V-Beach. The only thing that helped change the momentum was when the machine guns from the River Clyde opened up. This caused some of the Turks to keep their heads down, which created pockets of opening, enough for the men to advance just far enough for some to reach safety behind the mounds of sand. This was the point where many of the soldiers became pinned down. They had no chance of advancing past this point, at least in the light of day. Throughout the morning, the commanders insisted on making more attempts to push the men forward, hoping this would expose some sort of weakness in the defense so they could penetrate through. But the Turkish guns stopped each push. Most of the higher-ups, like Hunter Weston, had no idea just what a disaster V Beach had turned into. The slaughter was tremendous, and some of the higher-ups didn't have a clue. But some officers believed the men just needed to be properly led. Officers like Brigadier General Henry Napier. Yes, a general leading men in combat. And I wouldn't Google Brigadier General Napier. There's a few and it gets confusing who's who. Napier must have believed that because the lighters were jamming up, this must have meant the officers had been killed and that it was his duty to step in and lead the men. Napier jumped out into the lighters. One man had even yelled down, You can't possibly land. Napier replied with, I'll have a damn good try. Napier ordered a group of Worcestershires to follow, and they began to run across the lighters. It was later described by two privates who said, quote, I saw three wounded Irishmen, wounded and hanging onto a small boat. One was shouting, Oh, by Jesus, save me. I gave the general a leg up onto the lighter, then his brigade major. Then I was pushed up, and the deck of the lighter was covered with dead men. We started over the deck when the general went down. He never spoke. Then the major went down, but he raised himself on one knee and said, Carry on, men. Then he was dead. Private Cecil Jeffries, 4th Worcestershire Regiment, 88th Brigade, 29th Division. The other private said, We were following the general. 
He got to the third boat and he was killed. The brigade major followed him and he got killed. Our major said, this is too risky. And he got out of the way into the little boat. That caused us a stop and we all laid in the lighter. There we stayed until night came. Private George Keene, 4th Worcestershire Regiment, 88th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. Napier's body slipped overboard into the sea during the chaos and was never recovered. The actions Napier took was nothing short of courageous. But often courage isn't enough. This action also cost the 88th Brigade their commander. Not a wise decision from a general. And when soldiers see their commander killed in action, I can only imagine it brings on a feeling of hopelessness or a feeling of defeat. Later towards the morning, even after another bombardment commenced, General Sir Ian Hamilton witnessed the carnage from the Queen Elizabeth signal to Hunter Weston that V Beach was a, a loss and that all further troops should be diverted to W Beach. Remember, there were still a lot of soldiers stranded on the beach at this time. They were huddled behind small mounds of sand strung along the beach and below the Settle Bar Fort. And all Ian Hamilton could come up with was, It's a loss. Send the remaining troops to W. You can't divert a soup sandwich. You can only try to salvage what's left. By mid-afternoon, roughly around 200 men were pinned down and still an estimated 1,000 remained in the belly of the SS River Clyde. The only hope at this point, unlike what Sir Ian Hamilton suggested, could only come from the help of other landing points. Commander Unwin was standing next to Colonel Carrington Smith when British soldiers were spotted pushing out from W Beach. Unwin moved to the upper deck to get a better view. He called down for Smith to join him, as the upper deck also provided more security from sniper fire. As he looked down, he seen Smith holding up binoculars to his eyes in an open deck below. Just then, the rear of Carrington Smith's head exploded out. A Turkish sniper shot Smith right through the mouth, out the back of the skull. The body of the colonel immediately dropped. The dead weight hit the deck with a thud. Blood and brain matter splattered everywhere. Another high-ranking officer taken by the Turks. Another big blow to the 29th Division. It's hard to imagine after describing the British situation that the Turks were also taking losses and feeling the pressure since they seemed to have the upper hand. But they were. They too were taking losses. On a much smaller scale, but the Brits did outnumber the Turks. One of Major Mahmoud's lieutenants was pleading for reinforcements, saying it wasn't possible to send the enemy back out to the sea with the remaining men he had, and if reinforcements wasn't an option, an evacuation must be made. He believed, come nightfall, the British would be landing more soldiers, and at night, the situation will change. The British might just have a chance to advance. The lieutenant named Abdul Rahman was correct. His men were exhausted, and the British, from this point of view, just seemed to keep coming. And again, it's important to point out that the British did have more soldiers in numbers, so technically they outnumber the Turks. There were no reserves on hand to help out Rahman. All that Mahmoud had available was just enough to help out at Hill 141 between W and V. Darkness had arrived and was the game changer for the British on that dreadful day. This allowed the remaining troops to get up onto the beach. The Turks could hear them but couldn't see them, almost like a horrifying game of Marco Polo. Major Mahmoud recalled talking to the men that night, saying, quote, 
The officers and men of the Ninth Company were spoken to. They were told that the fate of the nation depended on us this night, that if we were able to gain time for our army by stopping the enemy's advance, we would have completed our task. The battalion officers and men were told that help would come, that on arrival of help, a bayonet attack would be made, and that with the grace of Allah, the timorous enemy would finally be driven into the sea. Not for a moment did they call to mind the comparison between the enemy's strength and their own. Major Mahmoud, 3rd Battalion, 26th Regiment, 9th Division, 5th Army. End quote. The darkness of the night sky didn't only give the British soldiers a chance to get a foothold on the beach, it also allowed brave medics to get ashore and help those in need. One brave medic described it, saying, quote, I set off alone over the barges and splashed through the remaining few yards of water. Here, most of those still alive were wounded more or less severely, and I set to work on them, removing many useless and harmful tourniquets for one thing, and worked my way to the left towards the high rocks where the snipers were still there. I went to a long, low rock which projected into the water for about 20 yards, a short way to the right of the Clyde. Here, the dead and wounded were heaped together, two and three deep, and it was amongst these I had my hardest work. At the very point of this rock, which had been a favorite spot for the boats to steer to, there was a solid mass of dead and wounded mixed up together. The whole of these I saw too, although by this time there was little I could do except lift and pull them into more comfortable positions, but I was able to do something for every one of them. Lieutenant George Davidson, 89th Field Ambulance, RAMC. April 25th, 1915 at Hellas was a bad day for the British Empire. Foolish mistakes were made, mostly by high-ranking officers taking unnecessary risks. Carnage was spread all throughout the southern heel of Gallipoli. The night was cold, miserable, and filled with more fighting. The air was dense that night. Dense because it was filled with the stench of death and cries from the wounded. The men feared what was coming next. And I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. There's a lot more to what happened next for the British and French, but this series is just on the April 25th landings, and I still have the Anzac landings to discuss on the next episode, which should wrap up this series. This was the largest amphibious military assault any military had seen until D-Day. This was a major event for the Great War and for modern warfare. It's so brutal and horrific, yet so fascinating, and I encourage you to read more about it. This episode's Great War recommendation is a documentary I watched on YouTube. Now, there's no method to my recommendations. I try to keep them related to the subject matter, kind of, but not really. If I've watched something or read something about the Great War and I really enjoyed it, I'm going to share it right away. And I like YouTube. There's a lot of good content. And I'm assuming since YouTube has it up, I'm able to share the link, which I'll have in the episode's description. Anywho, the documentary is called The First World War from Above. It was put out by the BBC in 2010. I actually liked it so much, I went to buy it on Amazon. Not available on my neck of the woods to purchase, though, which makes no sense whatsoever. And that's why I go to YouTube. 
It's about a French pilot who goes up in the in an airship and flies around the Western Front after the war to film the devastation. You get a bird's eye view over his shoulder, seeing Ypres right after the war. The destruction is just jaw-dropping. The pilot's daughter was given the opportunity to watch her dad's film for the first time ever. It was really special and very moving for her, especially once you hear about what happened to him and his wife 20 years after the war ended. It also shows aerial photography from the war that had been locked away for over 90 years. It's such a fantastic documentary. I wish it was available for me to purchase. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. I'd like to thank all of you for your continued support. You fans are the best. If you're on social media, please like Over the Top, a great war podcast on Facebook, and follow me on Instagram at OTTGWpodcast or email the show at OTTGWpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe, stay healthy. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. <laughs>